welcome to another episode of God in the Paranormal, a podcast exploring all things strange from a biblical worldview. Last time we looked at the importance of the supernatural in the biblical worldview, and we laid a foundation for understanding future episodes. If you haven't watched episode one, I suggest you go back and see that one first. Also, check out our quick pots. These are brief supplements to our episodes that we hope will help explain finer points. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Suzanne, and I'm here with John. Ever have a pet mouse? No. Have you? Uh, Well, being a science teacher, that gives me an excuse for doing all kinds of eccentric things. I can just say it's for science. So you had a pet mouse? Yes, I did have a pet mouse. It was a couple of years ago, happened to be in the pet shop, not looking for anything in particular. And I was surprised that they had bred such pretty colors of mice that I I didn't know about those. But but anyway, I started thinking, wouldn't it be neat to teach with a mouse on my shoulder? Wouldn't that be cool? Like, yeah, you are such a fun teacher. Would you feed it crackers and name it Polly? (laughs) Maybe. But anyway, I found one that was a very large female about to give birth. The thought just popped into my head, you know, I could buy one mouse and have like 10 mice in a few days. Then if my students thought, man, he's neat because he's got a mouse, I could actually sell mice to them and have some (laughs) supplemental income. Side hustle. (laughs) And I took it to school because I couldn't keep it at home. They just smell too bad. But anyway, I put it in my school room. (laughs) And it it was the science building, actually. So a huge building. Next morning, no mouse. What? Where'd the mouse go? I didn't know. But I assumed it was in a big building. And I'd already gotten tired of it because it did smell bad. So I decided I'm not going to look for it. I'm I'm never going to find it. So about six months go by. And I start seeing these little signs of mice in my science lab. Little indications here and there, a few torn open seed packages and footprints, things like that. So I'm thinking, yeah, that mouse is probably still here somewhere, obviously. And maybe she did have babies. So I'm thinking (laughs) there's probably like three or four mice in the wall somewhere. I started noticing when I came in in the morning and turned the light on, I would see a couple of mice scurrying around somewhere. I didn't think too much about it. Then (laughs) the custodians came in and they said, you know, you have got a lot of mice in here. And I said, well, I'll take care of it. So I started putting out some live traps because I wanted to be humane. Every single trap had a mouse in it the next day. That was like four of them. And I thought, oh, oh, I didn't didn't imagine we had that many. So I put out the traps again and caught four more and put them out again and caught four more. Long story short, 73 mice before it was 73 mice. So, yeah, the point was, and I I do have a point with this. They weren't paranormal mice, but the thing was, there those were 73 mice hiding somewhere in the wall or the plumbing or something. And the only clues I had were just a few little odds and ends or a few little signs that mice might be there. So, yeah. I'm not trying to stretch this metaphor. Well, I am trying to stretch it. This metaphor is <laughs> way overstretched. But that's kind of like the unseen realm. We know from Scripture that there are lots and lots of creatures in the unseen realm. But all we get in Scripture are just little snippets mm. of things being there. And that's to be expected because we mentioned last time the Bible wasn't written just to give us all the information about everything we would possibly want, even about the supernatural or spiritual. So... You know, I appreciate yeah. the, the few things that we do get. Uh, Second Corinthians, 
I like this verse because it says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that really is true. So there's just kind of like fingerprints of the supernatural and the spiritual or crumbs or footprints, like what you were saying. And we get some a lot of that in scripture. Yeah. It's kind of like a forensic mystery, isn't it? Because the clues are there. You just kind of have to dig them out and put them together. And to be honest, I went through most of my adult life without even considering much about how amazing the supernatural realm really was. I had ideas about angels and demons like most people, but it's a very interesting place. Yeah, I don't think most of us think about the spiritual stuff as much until maybe we're in a high crisis situation or something weird happens. Yeah. Did you ever see any of the Star Wars episodes? Well, um, my ringtone on my phone is actually Chewbacca calling. Um, And that was really awesome at first. And now it's really annoying, but it's definitely, yeah, I'm a big Star Wars fan. I actually saw the first movie when it first came out. So that's how old I am. And that that cantina scene just blew me away because that was the first time I think I'd seen a a science fiction show that showed just so many different various and diverse creatures. I was really impressed by that. But in the real universe and not a galaxy far, far away, the Bible (laughs) really does, like we said, describe some very interesting beings. And they're just beyond our ability to see most of the time. And it it is amazing. The Unseen Realm is just a very intriguing place, I think. So let's do a little detective work. Can you think of some people in the Bible who actually got to see into the supernatural realm? Yeah, well, when you actually think about it, there's a lot more supernatural things in the Bible than we first think about. For example, Paul in his vision of heaven. Mm-hmm. And John, when he's on the island of Patmos. Yeah. And even Jacob, when he wrestles with God. Yeah. And then there's an Elisha, Elisha, sorry, in Second Kings 6, where his servant wakes up and is super afraid because there's like an invading army. One of my favorite. And Elisha prays and asks that the servant's eyes be opened and there's like chariots of fire and all of these spiritual beings there present protecting Elisha. I picture that servant waking up and just freaking out about the Syrian army there. And he's just whining and moping. And so Elisha has to come up and say, it's okay. It's okay. Those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And the the servant's still just freaking out. And so Elijah probably just says, okay, God, could you please just show him what's out there? And so he lifts the veil, so to speak, and just sees, yeah, like you said. Like, what's really going on? Did Elisha always see that? Or did he just know that God was there in all of his armies? Yeah. It's it's an incredible story. I don't know. Either he had a lot of faith or God also gave him a vision of it. But that's really the way it is. And we're so caught up in just the natural part because it's what slaps us in the face every morning when we get up. And it's it's just there all day long. To me, it would be better if we just rename the supernatural the natural, and then let's call the natural the subnatural. 
because that's really oh, I more, like that. that's more what it's like than to think that well the natural is the big thing around and we've got this supernatural somewhere but no scripture shows that the supernatural really is the focus of everything that's where god is and he created this natural realm that we're in now that we think is just so great and so compelling so maybe we should go back a bit first and consider the supreme supernatural being in this place. We have a quick pod on God the Most High if listeners want more info. But what do we need to know right now? I think for now, the main thing for us to keep in mind is that God is sovereign over every other being that we'll be discussing. We'll see that there are a lot of inhabitants of the supernatural described in Scripture. Some people tend to lower God to just another one of them. But no, God created everything, period. He doesn't have an equal. He doesn't even have an opposite like in polytheistic myths. Scripture says right. that God is completely holy. He is one of a kind. He's the source yes. of everything that is and totally in control of all that is. So it's not like the yin-yang or the force on Star Wars no. uh, with the dark side and the light side, and you never know which one will win. Yeah, not does even God have a, Does like God have a place that he lives or is he just everywhere? That's a good question. If you think about God in the very beginning, before he created everything, you would have to say that he was somewhere, but that kind of says that a location was there for God to be in. So I don't think that's true either. I think God was everything. So I don't understand it, but somehow he existed as a triune God and he created a place to put things in, which would be us and yeah. the rest of the supernatural. But he's definitely omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. Although we know that he can be in certain places in a special way, not just omnipresent. For example, the burning bush, he'd been having mm. the flame there. And we know that he yeah. met the Israelis at the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And the Holy yeah. Spirit, Holy Spirit somehow can live inside of us. And we also discuss the heavenly throne room that God resides in. Several Old Testament verses talk about a special place in heaven that God resides as his special holy place. I'm glad you brought up the heavenly throne room because we've been using terms unseen realm and supernatural realm. And what about the place we call heaven? Yeah, the Bible often uses the term heaven to describe either all or part of the unseen realm and sometimes something else in addition. I'm pretty sure it's just way more complicated than I could ever imagine. As far as what the Second Temple Jews considered heaven, they talked about three different heavens. And that's why the scripture talks about Paul being transported to the third heaven in one of his mm. visions. Because they saw uh, the first heaven, the air around you where the birds fly. And then like a physical, them, yeah. Yeah. To them, the stars and the sun and everything were kind of in a place above that that they considered the second heaven. And then mm. God was even above that in what they call the third heaven. You use the term second temple Jews. For listeners who may not know, they're the Jews who lived from about 500 BC through the lives of Jesus and the apostles about 70 AD. The reason that's important is that they were the recipients of the New Testament, and they gave us a lot of the writings about the Old Testament. We understand much of biblical context through their perception. Yeah. You mentioned Michael Heiser in the previous episode. I credit him with pointing out to me the importance of context in understanding Scripture. The Bible was certainly written for us, but it was also written to a specific person or group. 
And we have to consider the context of those recipients' understanding. And primarily, we look at how the Second Temple Jews interpreted, because obviously they were the ones who wrote and received the New Testament, and also they wrote about the Old Testament. And so we kind of look through their eyes to do a lot of Bible interpretation. In fact, let's do a little interpreting right now. How do we interpret what the Bible says about the unseen realm? Suzanne, you're a Latin teacher, correct? Yep, yep. So how does it compare with English in accuracy? It's interesting whenever you deal with foreign languages, and specifically with Latin, it's really uh, translation-based mostly. There's some new movements to speak it, but usually you're, you're translating a lot. And what I've found is that when you translate from Latin to English, the original text in its original language is usually so much richer and more meaningful, or like one word in the original text can have different meanings based on the context. And sometimes that's lost in translation, or even like how the culture would receive this word versus how we receive it is just completely different. Yeah, it gets a little confusing with names of things and other nouns, especially in the way supernatural beings in the Bible are referenced. It helped me a lot to see how Heiser explained the context of some of these. For example, he says that beings can be described in several different ways. One way is as a set of characteristics, like I could say I'm a human or a man. And so the word human kind of takes with it the idea, oh, he's got a head and fingers and a mouth and everything. Or I could be described by a role that I play, such as a teacher or a Mm -hmm. gardener or a couch potato. That would be a a role that I kind of take on. Or I could take it further. I could be defined by the place that I live in or a dwelling place. I could say that I'm a Southerner, in case people haven't found that obvious. And (laughs) I'm an American. So we turn that then to what we sometimes call supernatural beings. Uh, For example, a, a specific set of characteristics in the Bible would describe something like a cherub. We'll mention this later, too. A cherub is a definite thing that has certain characteristics. We could talk about a seraph or even Yahweh, the official name, the covenant name of God himself. And there's only Mm. one Yahweh. So when we say that, we know we're talking about omniscience, omnipotence, and all the attributes of God. But what about a role in Scripture? This is where we pick up ideas like angels and archangels. We'll talk about this in a minute, but those are actually roles and not necessarily a characteristic. So what Heiser was trying to say was that when you use the word angel, which means messenger, that can have any set of characteristics because you're not defining a creature. You're defining a Mm. role that a creature was playing. There's also some translation confusion when we use names to indicate the most high Yahweh God. Often we see the name Lord, which is a role name, obviously. We have people who are also called lords. The English word God is sometimes confusing because it isn't necessarily always representative of a set of characteristics, although we use it that way in that we have the little g God, which we use to designate false gods. The actual word that's translated God from the Old Testament is usually the word Elohim, which again is a bit misleading because to a second temple Jew, That was a place descriptor, one who lived in the supernatural realm. Hmm. And it could be used for the most high God, or it could also be used for any other heavenly creature at times. It could be used in a singular tense or in a plural form, depending on the context. Look at Psalm 82, verse 1. 
God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Both of those words, God, the capital and the small case, are both the word Elohim in the Hebrew. The first one obviously is singular. The second one is plural. There's a good example of context telling us which is plural and which is singular, and also which is talking about the God Most High and which is talking about other beings around him. I suppose the most well-known and obvious supernatural beings are the angels, another one of our cultural obsessions, right? Yeah, it seems to be. Uh, they're right up there with Bigfoot and ghosts, except we know from scripture yeah. that angels actually do exist. Maybe not in the way most people think, but they are clearly throughout the Bible. Do you think they can be seen in this natural realm? Well, they have been seen in the natural realm. We have a lot of examples of it in scripture. Uh, Hebrews 13.2, for example, says to be hospitable because you may be entertaining angels and not even know about it. Person on the street that you give money to possibly would be an angel. That's pretty clear in Hebrews that's, that's, that, 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 that could happen. Yeah, that verse has always kind of stuck with me. It's like they're there in the background, that they're among us. Uh-huh. Um, but it seems like they can take on some kind of physicality in the natural world. Abraham visited with three angels that look like And two angels in human form visited Lot in Mm -hmm. Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't have a clue how all this works. We know angels are spirit beings, yet if they want to, they can appear to have bodies. And a lot of times they have human bodies. Angels are good examples of that name confusion we talked about. Literally, in Hebrew, the word Moloch and in Greek, the word angelos. That actually just means messenger. And so back to Heiser's classification, these are literally roles that one of God's creatures could play. So we tend to think about angels like with feathered wings and things like that. But according to, (laughs) according to this, an angel could be any type of creature. And scripture uses the word um, for any messenger, including sometimes humans. The first three chapters of Revelation are written to quote angels of the churches, which most scholars say are the human leaders of the churches. Yeah, it could be heavenly creatures, but it seems like it's talking to the pastors of the churches. So let's let's get our first clue about angels. Job 38, verse 7, it says, While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. If you back up a little bit, the context is God is telling Job about the beginning of the world when he created everything while the morning stars sang together. So angels are equated with stars, even in uh, extra biblical accounts. You'll see that all through scripture. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean ancients believed angels were stars. It could be that they thought angels lived on or in stars some way. Morning stars singing in this passage would be like a pastor remarking, my, the front pew is really singing out today. He obviously isn't talking about the pew. He's talking about the people in the pew, something like that. So there's not much doubt here that it's talking about the angels singing together. They're watching God create the world and singing. So the first clue is they were there before the world was created. I think it's interesting, too, that if you think about numbering the angels, we know that there are a billion times a trillion stars in the universe. So I'm just speculating here. But if stars represent angels, is it possible that there are that many angels out there? I don't know. 
Wow. In our pop culture, in comic, kids' TV shows, dog that dies goes to become an angel or the human goes and has wings and stuff. And we're going to talk a little bit more about heaven, but um, maybe we aren't getting it right in pop culture. If God had made all of these angels before he created the world, the angels are messengers. And when we die and go to heaven, um, if we know Jesus, we're not necessarily becoming a messenger, right? I think it started in Hollywood. And it just sounded good to say when you die, you become an angel. But no, nowhere in scripture does it even talk about that. And and we know they're not robots. They have their own will and intellect and they rejoice. So obviously they have feelings, mm. emotions, and some of them are wow. even named. We have Michael and Gabriel. If Lucifer was an angel, then he would be, I guess, the third one. Since I'm a Latin teacher, let me just um, get in there about Lucifer. His name comes from the Latin word lucus, which means light, and the fur, which means which means to bear or carry. So literally, his name means light carrier or light bearer. Um, and we see that in Scripture when it's talked about him before he's fallen. Yeah. We'll have much more to say about him next episode. A major player. So how many angels? Hebrews 12:22 talks about an innumerable company of angels. And Revelations 5:12 says, "Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Myriads is a great but indefinite number." It sounds big. In my opinion. I think that's what the custodian said about the mice. You have myriads of mice <laughs> in the wall. So, however I'm so many, glad you didn't lose your job over the mice. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there are a lot of angels. And thanks to medieval and Renaissance artists, we've completely messed up the appearance of angels, I think. That's what you were talking about, that we have the idea that angels are winged, feathered, floating around somewhere in the sky. But also in medieval and Renaissance art, I mean, they're like chubby babies. Yeah, <laughs> chubby little babies flying around the throne. I don't think that's anywhere in scripture either. Also, no. beautiful women angels, like touched by an angel and even winged oh, and halos and things like that. The real story is, did you notice almost every time an angel appears to a human, the very first words are, fear not. You must be pretty terrifying if you have to appear yeah. instantly say, hold on, it's okay, I'm not going to hurt you. Second Kings 19.35, one angel kills 185,000 Syrian soldiers in one night. Wow. That's a lot. That's a scary angel. That's not a little yeah. chubby baby. And yeah. two angels wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah. Kind of reminds me of the angel of death that happens as the 10th plague um, in Egypt. Yeah, yeah, same thing. In all of those cases, those angels were more than just messengers. So a different role again. And that's yeah, where some of the confusion saying. comes in. In the New Testament, the word messenger gets a little bit looser because we see angels not really doing completely messenger type things. But in some of those places, it actually doesn't say that they're angels. It calls them something else. And we'll talk about that in a minute, too. Again, is coming back to the translation where we have a limited vocabulary of what we can pull from when we talk about spiritual beings. So let's just use the word angel, right? Yeah. 
We tend to just use the word angel for every supernatural being. And that's that's one of the points of this episode is to show it's a little bit more complicated than that. And it may not affect your theology very much, but it does kind of affect the way that you think about the supernatural to know that not everything out there is an angel. There are other creatures mentioned in Scripture. We often think of them as angels, but maybe not. Yes. In Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. This doesn't imply that it's a messenger. It's a special creature, it calls it here. So it doesn't use the word angel. For all practical yeah. purposes, then, I guess if you're getting picky, this is not really in the role of an angel, at least at this time. It's a seraphim, a set of characteristics, and it even describes it here that it has six wings and how it uses the wings and things like that. Apparently, these are somehow guarding the holiness of God's throne room. And that gives mm-hmm. us another clue, because obviously God doesn't need guards to guard his holiness. He's sharing a responsibility with another creature. That's going to come into play later, too, that God really doesn't need any other creatures. He's totally self-sufficient as a triune God, but he lets other creatures share in responsibilities for things. And here's another heavenly creature in Ezekiel 1. Listen to how weird this being is. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Wow. These are the cherubim that we often hear about. And it's funny that the cherub is the thing we usually think of as the little cupid guy that's cute little chubby baby. Yeah. Literally, though, it means fiery serpent. And uh, yeah, they're another one of those things that are considered a warrior or a guardian. Imagine trying to draw a picture of this. I just don't think you can do it justice. But I think that's Ezekiel's point here, because he's looking at this stuff saying it's just totally impossible or awesome to describe it. Mm-hmm. We also know that cherub guarded the entrance to Eden. God put his cherub there with a sword. I mean, if you're going to guard Eden and keep people out, you would want something scary looking, I guess. And also on the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, it was two cherubs that had their wings together. Yeah. Yeah. 